I want you to imagine a room, a room the size of a small bathroom. This room has within it your roommate. Your roommate is darkness. This is a thick darkness, a darkness kept by a locked door and a small window. They do not permit sunshine or light in that room at any time of day. This room also has a coldness. The stone walls and the stone floor emit a a freezing coldness. You can feel it in your bones. In the summertime, this same small room holds heat. The heat just hangs there in the room in the middle of the summer. And this room is quiet. The only greeting you might get would be a violent wind or a a passing storm. On the side of an old, old church, the St. Nicholas Church, stands a very small room, this very room. It's among the last remaining anchorite cells. Now, an anchorite cell dates back to the medieval ages. Men and women voluntarily gave themselves to these cells. They enclosed themselves within them. They were walled up as though they've died to the world. All worldly influences and worldly contacts came to an end forever, at least as long as they continued to live. This was called an aesthetic life. It was a way of dying to the world, to be more spiritual by divorcing oneself from her. This strict self-denial, it was thought, brought about spiritual growth. They lived in these cells, and they died in these cells. You see, these were not cells in that they were homes. These cells were tombs. And we know that a tomb represents death. Indeed, many who gave themselves to this way of life died as a result of the condition of living in that tomb or in that cell. Who would do this? What a strange practice. Why do the living reside among the dead? Well, a similar question is asked in today's passage. We heard it a moment ago. Why do you seek the living one among the dead? You see, Jesus is alive. He's resurrected from the dead. Tombs and graves and death, they do not hold him. You and I no longer need to live dead lives. Lives that are walled in by dead religion and dead pursuits and dead ambitions. Jesus Christ died and rose again so that we can live for something much more. He gives life. Everything else is a tomb. In the end, it is this anchorite cell that walls us in awaiting death. But not in Christ and not for his people. We live because he's conquered the tomb. Well, this morning, I want you to see three ways Christ triumphed over death, and he did this for you. 
A few moments ago, Doug read from Luke chapter 24. He read those 12 verses. It was the account of the, uh, the, 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 the encounter at the tomb where Mary and other women and then Peter saw a risen or an empty tomb. Luke is the author of this letter. He wrote to a man named Theophilus in a way, when we read this, we're reading someone else's mail. But he says that he interviewed many eyewitnesses. He interviewed many servants of the word. Listen to what else he says. It seemed fitting for me, having investigated everything carefully from the beginning, to write it out for you in consecutive order. Most excellent Theophilus. So he writes to a man named Theophilus, and God in his wisdom and in his providence has given us this letter as sacred scripture. It's the third book of the New Testament in the Bible. And Luke Luke includes this account of, of Jesus and his resurrection. That's what we read, which is, of course, what we celebrate today. Well, I want to look now at how Jesus defeated death. Tombs hold dead people, but Jesus conquered death. Tombs hold dead people, but Jesus conquered death. Now, you can travel the world wide and you can see all kinds of tombs. The Yagara are man-made caves of Japan. The catacombs of Paris are quite extensive. They date all the way back to 1786. Some say they number as many as six million corpses in these varied hallways. In fact, they installed signs so you don't get lost. You want to come back out of there. A ship burial is a grave, very popular among the Vikings, and then the pyramids of Egypt, of course. They're the world's most famous mausoleums. Whatever shape, whatever size, all these tombs have one thing in common. They hold dead people. Tombs hold dead people. And near the end of Luke's gospel, Jesus is very dead. One chapter back in Luke 23, a man named Joseph of Arimathea, he asked the Romans for the body of Jesus. Uh, The Romans executed Jesus by crucifixion. They were a powerful presence in Israel of the time, and they hung him on a cross to die. Joseph took down the body and wrapped it in a linen cloth. He laid it in a tomb cut into the rock where no one had ever lain. Just full stop. Think about this for a moment. For you and I, the most contact we probably have with one who is deceased may be at a memorial service. Maybe it's an open casket at a viewing. Joseph took down the body of Jesus. That means he had to work the nails out of his hands. He had to work the nail out of his foot. He had to figure out how to get that crown of thorns out of his skull. He then transported the body. He wrapped Jesus in a linen cloth. He's then, by the way, joined by a man named Nicodemus. You heard that right, Nicodemus. If you want to know why that's so cool, you've got to go back and look that up. Nicodemus shows up with about 100 pounds of perfumes and spices. That's a lot of time to discover if Jesus is indeed dead. In that time, his body would have cooled. 
It would have stiffened without that circulating blood. And as he hung on the cross, his face would have lost color. His upper torso would have lost color. All the blood settling in his legs. Those who set out to kill Jesus, they themselves confirmed his death. A man named John, he witnessed the crucifixion of Jesus. And he records a Roman soldier piercing his side. And when he did this, blood and water came out. They came out together, but they came out separately. When our, when our bodies stop circulating blood, the water and the blood separate. And they gather around the heart and lungs. It was a, a sign then, it's a sign now, that someone's died. And Pilate, the Roman leader in charge of this carnage, he's not about to let someone off who's still living. He gave the okay to Joseph. There's no way he's getting rid of a body that's still alive. So Jesus lies dead in a tomb. But on the first day of the week, at early dawn, the women come to the tomb bringing the spices spices they had prepared. This is where Doug picked up this morning. They are completing the work that Joseph began. We learn down in verse 10, three of their names. There's Mary Magdalene. Mary was possessed by demons. Jesus cast them out, and from that time forward, she followed Jesus. There's a woman there named Joanna. Back in Luke chapter 8, Luke records Joanna as the wife of Herod's steward, another high-ranking official in the Roman government. That means she would have been someone of, of, of wealth. And then there's Mary, the mother of James. We, we don't know a lot about who this is, also in Luke chapter 24, but we do know this. These women showed great faith and great courage to go out that morning. One verse back, Luke 23, they prepared spices and perfumes. On the Sabbath, they rested according to the commandment. That, that makes this the day Saturday. They obeyed that Sabbath rest. And then on Sunday, the first day of the week, they, they went out to the tomb, which is, by the way, why we worship on Sundays. We gather together as God's people because it's the day of his resurrection. Our text says that they were out there at early dawn. Luke wrote this letter in the Greek language. It reads literally, the deep dawn. I mean, that's insanely early. Deep dawn. When they set out, it was, it was darkness. I mean, there was no street lights. There were no headlights. I assume they walked by torch. They're searching. They're hunting this tomb and this massive stone. And they carried with them their spices and their perfumes. The thinking was they would go in there and, and pack these around a corpse over time, they would allow that to lay in the tomb and decay down to bones, collect the bones and put them in an ossuary and then keep that, much like an urn in our day. So you can imagine then why these spices and perfumes were such a big deal, not only with Joseph and then Nicodemus, but also these women as well. Mark's gospel, another man who recorded this resurrection of Jesus, records that the sun is up when they reach the tomb. You can imagine their surprise. Imagine their anxiety. It's that feeling you get in your stomach 
when some event is so significant, you can almost feel something drop. They saw an open tomb. A stone moved away. It's an enormous stone. Who moved the stone? Well, Matthew says that an angel moved the stone. There were supposed to be Roman guards. Where are the Roman guards? Well, they split. They reported this to the Jews. They got some money, and then they left town. But why did it move? Because tombs do not hold the living. Jesus Christ is alive. The tomb is empty. And he is at the right hand of God in heaven. Angels and authorities and powers have been subjected to Christ. He sat down at the right hand of God. That's a fitting place for a king. He's gone to prepare a place for you. He promises to return to receive you again to himself, that where he is, you may be, and that forever. So I want to ask you, is your soul alive this morning? Or is it dead? If you follow Jesus Christ, if you've believed upon him, your soul is alive. If you have not followed Christ, if you have not believed in him, your soul is dead. It's in a tomb. Everything else, all other religions, all these other targets for our affection in this life, they are a spectacular mix of delights and highs. They're a spectacular mix of, of, of distractions and dreams. But all of them in the end, though so wonderful, they're all so dead. Nothing can satisfy like Jesus Christ can. Amen. Everything else is a, is a cold stone wall. It's just walling us in, waiting for death. Life is found only in Jesus and in Christ alone. Tombs hold the dead. Jesus conquered death. Secondly, tombs declare death. Jesus proclaims life. Tombs declare death. But Jesus proclaims life. Visit any cemetery, and what do you see? Rows and rows of tombstones. They are the final mile marker on every life's journey. All of us, without exception, will encounter the grave. We all have a final destination. Everyone shares this. But the reality is that death is not the end. Death is the beginning of eternity. Death takes us out of, out of this life, but immediately into a new life. There's no pause. There's no wait. As soon as we pass this life, we are immediately in this next life. And that next life is going to be uh, as real as you are sitting here this morning. You'll be just as conscious and just as aware as you are right now. You're either going to die and go to eternal life because you follow Jesus, or you're going to die and go to eternal death because you did not. Jesus proclaims life, and he invites you to that life. And he proclaims it in two ways in this passage. Verse 4, while the women were perplexed, behold, two men suddenly stood near them in dazzling clothing. And as the women were terrified and bowed their faces to the ground, the men said to them, why do you seek the living one among the dead? He is not here, but he is risen. Remember how he spoke to you while he was still in Galilee. 
saying that the Son of Man must be delivered into the hands of sinful men and be crucified and the third day rise. In this passage, Jesus proclaims life and he proclaims resurrection. Two men function as his spokesmen. Our text simply reads, two men. Who are these men? Well, we don't have a whole lot to go on in our passage. There are a few clues in the passage. They have a sudden appearance. Luke says that they suddenly stood. They're also familiar with the words of Jesus. They knew of his prediction. And they wear dazzling clothing. Some of you who dressed in the 70s will wrongly interpret this word. (laughs) Dazzling may be one way to describe the way you've dressed. I have old church directories. (laughs) But dazzling here means flashing, gleaming. Luke used the word elsewhere of lightning to describe lightning. Other gospel accounts weigh in. The gospel of Mark says they were dressed in white robes. That is not the, the, the wardrobe of a funeral. And Matthew's gospels tells us simply that they're angels. An angel is a messenger of God. They are not divinity. They are not God. They serve God. They are created beings who act on God's behalf. The Bible tells us that there's an uncountable number of angels in the heavenly realms. And we see them performing all kinds of functions in the Bible. They're they're worshiping God. They're conducting warfare. They're serving God's people. Here, they deliver a message. Why do you seek the living one among the dead? I don't know who's more confused, if it's the angels or the women. (laughs) They knew of Jesus' prediction. Verse 4 tells us the women are also confused. The word is perplexed. But they're appealing to their memory. They're saying, remember, remember what Christ told you. Jesus, remember, is fully God. We heard earlier that all angels and authorities and powers are subjected to him. Here in this passage, he has sent forth two angels to proclaim his resurrection He is not in a tomb. After all, tombs are for dead people. Why look for Jesus there? Why go to a tomb if you seek life? He's proclaiming resurrection in this passage as well. The angels take the women back. Remember, recall what Jesus said. He predicted his death. The Son of Man Another stand-in for Jesus. He must be delivered into the hands of sinful men and be crucified. But most importantly in this text, he's going to rise again on the third day. Jesus proclaimed life, and he delivered. Well, this impacts you this morning, if you believe upon him. 1 Corinthians chapter 15, verse 20, it declares Christ has been risen from the dead the first fruits of those who are asleep. This is written by a man named Paul. He was a leader in the early church, and he wrote this letter to a church in a town called Corinth. And he said, Christ has been raised from the dead. That's a resurrection. It's the theme of our morning. But what else did he say? He goes on, the first fruits of those who are asleep. 
Asleep is, is a fitting description for the Christian because death is temporary. That, that physical death is just uh, for a, a moment. He uses the word first fruit. First fruit is the, the first crop collected at a harvest. It's, it's a sampling. It's a, a taste of what is to come. It's going to indicate what everything else will be that follows. And that means that just as Jesus was raised from the dead, so too will his people. As Christ was given life again, so too will we. Our tombs will be emptied. Our bodies will be renewed. Joy will be magnified. Peace will be complete. Rewards will be enormous. Believer, you were not made for the tomb. You were not made to live a dead life. Jesus has died and risen again so too will you. Finally, thirdly, tombs produce doubt that Jesus provides hope. Tombs produce doubt. Jesus provides hope. Alistair McGrath once called doubt the attention-seeking child. The more attention you give it, the more it demands. And the grave is that child. What does the grave do? It causes us to have uncertainty. It causes us to question, to doubt, to just take a moment and, and wonder. But Jesus Christ provides hope. Not hope in something that is uncertain, but hope that is sure. He enables us to manage that child, so to speak. Because in Christ alone, it's there that we can find freedom from our doubts. It's there that we can find comfort when we wrestle with life after death. The women remembered his words and returned from the tomb and reported all these things to the eleven and to the rest. Now they were Mary Magdalene and Joanna and Mary the mother of James. Also the other women with them were telling these things to the apostles. But these words appeared to them as nonsense and they would not believe them. But Peter got up and ran to the tomb, stooping and looking in. He saw the linen wrappings only and he went away to his home, marveling at what had happened. This passage contains responses for you and I, three good responses, responses of hope when we doubt. Because in the Christian life, you will doubt. But how do you respond? Well, first, we need to realize that doubt happens. Doubt is real. In verse 11, Luke records the response of the disciples the disciples were followers of Jesus. When he died, when he was crucified by the Romans, this obviously caused them great turmoil. And they all gathered together in a house. The Gospel of John records that they were barricaded in, and they were afraid of the Jews. If, if the Jews do that to Jesus, what will they do if they come after us? Not exactly a hope-filled time. So the women come, and they return to them, and they report to them. There's a moved stone. There's a pile of linens. The, the tomb is empty. And the text says that this appeared to them as nonsense. They would not believe them. Some of your Bibles read idle talk. Outside the Bible, Greek writers of the time used the word to describe the talk of an insane mind. It's what it's someone sounds like who's delirious. 
They're speaking nonsense. Naturally, again, death does not instill hope within us. They're doubting. They're disbelieving. The bottom line is that we will doubt in this Christian life. I mean, if these followers who heard and talked and touched Jesus, if they doubted, what of us 2,000 years removed from him? But notice that Christ came to those who doubted. You and I should be able to identify with doubters because we ourselves doubt. Our prayer should be, Emmanuel, that God would bring all kinds of doubters into this church. People who doubt the Christian faith. People who doubt the claims that we make. People who doubt that God even exists and that God would bring them here, not to to rebuke them, not to argue with them, but to witness, to witness and share what God has done to give us faith when we've doubted. We're able to minister to others because we ourselves have received that ministry and that from Christ. Secondly, when you doubt, remember Christ's promises. Remember the promises of Christ when you doubt. Verse 8 is significant. This is one of those short verses that just seems to pack a punch. It's five words. It's great for memorization, right? Five words. I joke, but maybe not. Maybe there's really something to this verse. They remembered his words. They remembered his words. That's an important statement. We can test it out, too, by simply removing it. We could say, for example, that the angels came along and they exhorted the women, remember how he spoke to you. But they didn't remember. Back to verse 4, they remained perplexed. They didn't return to the disciples. They didn't report to the disciples. They respond to death, the death of Jesus, like any other death. But when we doubt, remember his words. And to remember these words, we have to know the words. And to know the words, we have to read the words. These promises of Jesus are given to us in the Word of God, in the Bible. Let me ask you this. When was the last time you simply sat and remembered? And I'm going to use a word that's fallen out of fashion. Contemplate. When's the last time you really just sat to contemplate? Now, this word has fallen out of favor in the age of smartphones and over time and bloated schedules. But just to take the time to focus upon the Word, just to stop and to do nothing, but think, meditate, contemplate. That's a great balm for the soul that's struggling, that's doubting, that's in in need of hope. Just to slow down and take that time alone with the Lord and the Word of the Lord. Remember his promises. Thirdly, in times of doubt, refuse to be owned. Don't let doubt own you. Don't let it rule your heart. Don't let that attention-seeking child control your mind. Fight. Fight your doubts. We acknowledge them. We discussed that already. We remember the words of God. We just talked about that. But then fight those doubts. In verse 12, Peter runs to the tomb 
Keep in mind, he's part of that group in verse 11. They're all shut up in the house together. He's listening to the chatter. What nonsense. What are you telling us, this empty tomb, and Jesus is no longer there? Belief is this uncontagious strain of stuff floating through the air. Unbelief is. Yet Peter gets up and he runs to the tomb. And he marvels at what he sees, says the Bible. It's a pile of linens, linen wrappings laying there. There's no body, there's no Jesus, and there's no death. Then he goes home. You ever have a friend like this? (laughs) Thanks a lot, Peter. We've been stuck in this house wondering what happened to Jesus. And you went home. He stopped off to let us know. But that's not the end of the story either, is it? Jesus is going to appear to others on that Sunday. And Jesus is going to go on over the next 40 days to continue to appear and teach. And the hope that he brings is the hope that fights doubt and overcomes uncertainty. In our passage here this morning, we explored three ways that Christ triumphed over death. And he did it for you. Tombs hold death, but Jesus conquered death. Tombs declare death, but Jesus proclaims life. Tombs create doubt, but Jesus offers hope. Do you dwell among the tombs this morning? Are you seeking satisfaction and fulfillment from many things? Are you taking them one by one and slowly building that wall up around you, waiting for death, hoping for the best? It's that anchorite cell that you believe will give you life but just leads to death. If you're a Christian this morning, put down the trowel because Jesus Christ died and rose again to give you life and to give you new life. He is your life. He is your fulfillment. He is your security. He is your comfort. And if you're not a Christian here this morning, you have a casket-sized hole in your soul. Jesus alone can fill that. The pursuit of many other things in this life will not. And in the end, you'll discover, perhaps too late, that they did not. Jesus knows quite well the desire to live and to live fully. He understands your desire, and he died and rose again to fulfill it. Jesus Christ died for your sins, and he was buried, and he was raised on the third day. This is the gospel by which you are saved if you hold fast. If you have not yet believed, I invite you this morning just to step out of the grave, to leave those old things behind, and to come receive life from Jesus. Many will search a lifetime for these things which give life, but they search among the dead. Because that which does, we should say, he who does, he is not there, because he is risen, and he's risen indeed. Let's pray. Lord Jesus, we are thankful for your sacrifice and for the great joy you've brought us as we've read of your life and your death and your resurrection. I pray for us today 
that we would find our satisfaction in you. Oh, there are many good pursuits in this life, and we praise you for them. But may we never settle for anything but you. Bless us now as we depart from here. Bless our families. Grant us grace to know you. It's in your name that we pray. Amen.